We ask that you would breathe on us, Spirit of God. Work in our hearts as we hear you speaking. In the name of Christ, amen. We often learn by asking questions. That's how we often learn in the classroom. That's uh, often how you learn on those first days on the job and maybe the thousandth day on the job. And, and I think that's one of the significant ways that we learn in our relationship with God. We ask questions. Lord, where do I go from here? Lord, which, which path do you want me to take? Lord, I need you to help me understand this. Lord, how do I, how do I handle this? Lord, what's going on? We're pretty good at, at asking questions of God. And, and in those questions, we are acknowledging right up front, if not consciously, subconsciously, that we are in need and God is the one that has the answer. That we are weak and God is strong. That we are finite and God is infinite. That we often don't know much and God always knows everything. It's because of, of that mindset that I think, I think all of us would agree to. It's because of that mindset that when you come to the Gospels and you begin to read through the stories of the Gospels, it's surprising that Jesus is not just answering questions, but He's asking questions. Now, it really shouldn't surprise us because in the Old Testament, God asks many questions of His people. The very first pages of Genesis, Adam and Eve, where are you? To Elijah in the wilderness, why are you here? And to his people over and over again, why do you keep ignoring me? God asks questions to teach people who do not know. He asks questions to awaken apathetic hearts and, and to stir the memories of people who forget and sometimes to shock the senses of people who think they've got everything figured out. And when you read the Gospels and you ponder the questions of Jesus that He asks, you see the same reasons. What I've discovered as I've read through the Gospels examining the questions that Jesus asks is that the questions seem to always end up being at the heart of whatever else is going on around them. It seems as though every event and circumstance and, and, and person is either leading up to the question that Jesus asks or is the result of a question that Jesus asks. There's something about the questions of Jesus that pierces to the very heart of whatever needs to be learned or, or controlled or changed or transformed. And this story in Mark's gospel today is no exception. Capernaum seems to be sort of a base of operations for Jesus. He, uh, he, he's there and this, his ministry opens and uh, he does some amazing things and, and teaches in the synagogue and the people are impressed. And, and then he goes off for a little while to some other towns and villages around 
And as we come to chapter 2, he's back in Capernaum. He's in a home, and many people speculate that it's the home of Peter and Andrew. And he's in their home, and he's gathered his followers around him, and he's teaching them. And it doesn't take long for word to get around town. Jesus is back. And in a very brief time, it's no longer just the followers, the disciples of Jesus. The place is now packed. It couldn't stuff one more person into this little home. They're outside the door. They're spilling out onto the street. Everyone craning, trying to hear, peeping, trying to see Jesus. There's some guys in town whose friend is paralyzed. And when they hear Jesus is back, knowing that he has performed miracles and healed other people, they decide they're going to take their friend to Jesus. And they go get him. They put him on a cot. They carry him to Peter's home. And you imagine the disappointment they feel as they turn the corner to Peter's house and see this line of people. People packed into his home. No, they're not going near that place. They're not going to get near Jesus. And I can see them out on the, on the dusty road putting down the cot and thinking to themselves a few moments. What should we do? This idea and that idea. And finally, someone notices the outside staircase going up to the roof. Most of the homes in first century Palestine have two staircases to the roof. One inside the home and one outside. And they see that staircase. And in a flash of inspiration, they pick up the cot and they take this man up the stairs to the roof. And the roof of those homes typically would have some beams, some wooden beams going across... And it would be filled in with thatch and, and packed down dirt. And before you know it, these four guys are down on their hands and knees digging into this dirt. Meanwhile, everyone else is in the house listening to Jesus. And the people are sitting there and all of a sudden, whack, whoa, what was that? And again and again. And they look up and all they can see are little fingernails kind of working their way through the dirt. And Jesus is teaching and you know, it's important stuff. And he's got these people in the palm of his hand. And all of a sudden he realizes he doesn't have them in the palm of his hand anymore. They're not paying any attention to him. They're all looking at the ceiling. And he looks up and now you can see bare knuckles coming through. And everything stops. As these guys clear a path in the ceiling. And gently they begin to lower their friend down to the floor. I imagine Peter wasn't all that thrilled about that happening to his house. I can hear him saying, I knew we should have gone to Nathaniel's today instead of here. Here is this guy. And he comes down and, he, and they, they rest on the floor. They make a little space. And Jesus looks up at the guys in the ceiling. And he looks down at the guy in the cot. And he says... You're healed. Take up your mat and go home. No. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, as you read the story, you know, you're immediately drawn to, to these four men who tear open the roof and the man that they lower down in to see Jesus. 
And, and Jesus leads these guys through a very interesting journey, even in the few moments they encounter one another. I don't think anyone was more surprised by what Jesus said than those five men were. I, I'm sure they're thinking to themselves, whoa, wait a second. We didn't go through all this to have his sins forgiven. We went through all this to have him healed. We didn't tear up the roof so he could have his sins forgiven. We tore up the roof so he could walk again. What's going on? And you can't help but wonder, why is it Jesus says first your sins are forgiven? What's he trying to say? Is it because... God knows better than we do what we need? Is it because often God uses what we think we need to put us in a position to receive what we really need? You know, it's hard for us because we're so enamored with what we want, with what we think we need. But God doesn't always give us what we want, what we think we need. Because He's more concerned about giving us what we truly need. God is more concerned about meeting the deepest needs of our souls, of the resources of our being, than we often are. We're often willing to be content with surface things. God wants to work in us in deeper ways. Physical well-being, as important as it is, is not the essence of the Christian faith. Physical wealth, as important as that is, is not the essence of the Christian faith. And physical power and influence, as important as they can be, are not the essence of the Christian faith. Spiritual well-being, spiritual wealth, spiritual power, these are the essence of the Christian faith. Now, we don't know this man's story. We don't know anything about how long he's been afflicted or what caused it, how it happened, what his life has been like. We don't know anything. But we do know that in first century Palestine, Jews tended to see illness like this as a sign of a person's sinfulness. You remember in John 9, the disciples see a man who has been blind from birth. And they asked Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus dismisses that theology and says, no, 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 that's not it at all. But despite Jesus' dismissal of it, that was the common mindset. In the mind of many, severe illness is associated with this kind of universal separation from God. And so for Jesus to address the man's sinfulness first is to address the stigma associated with his sinfulness. I suspect that this man has lived with a great deal of guilt because of what he has done that caused him to end up like this. Whether it's true or not, that was the common mindset. And Jesus wants to set the record straight. Jesus wants this man to know God forgives him. Whatever he's done, God loves him, cares for him. And he says the same thing to you and me. Sometimes our thinking isn't all that different from first century Palestine. 
We, we often have a tendency to equate when we committing sin or not with how our life is going. I mean, even sometimes in jest, we will subconsciously send that message. You're driving your car and you have a close call and someone says, oh, you must be living right. As opposed to if you had an accident, you must be living wrong. You take a difficult test and and you do well, better than other people expected. And someone says, well, you must be doing some good things. Implying that if you had done poorly on the test, you must be doing bad things. Now granted, our, our choices in life do have consequences for us. But God wants us to know that He forgives whatever it is we've done. Whatever we think has caused things in our lives, we come to Christ and He forgives us. I have a feeling that Jesus wants us to understand that whatever we problems our sin has caused, He's ready to forgive us. God loves us and cares for us. And the moment Jesus addresses this man's sin, the story takes on a new dimension. Without the words of forgiveness, it's, it's a powerful story, but it's another story about healing. But when he talks about sin, it strikes to the very heart of our human need. And we need to hear God say to us, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. When you wrestle to believe it's true, Jesus says it's true. When you wonder if you've made too many wrong choices, hear him say, God loves you. You're forgiven. Your circumstances may not change, but you're forgiven. And that changes everything. But as wonderful as the story of healing and faith and forgiveness is, I'm not sure that's the primary point that Mark is trying to make. I'm not sure that Mark includes this story for that reason. I think he wants us to get the rest of the story And at the heart of the rest of the story is this question that Jesus asks. The religious leaders, the teachers of the law are, are sitting there in the front row. And they witness everything that happens. And when Jesus says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. They begin thinking to themselves, wait a minute. Who do you think you are? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin. I wonder if Jesus was tempted to say, that's the first right thing you've said all day. And Jesus understands their thoughts and he responds to them with two questions. The first in verse 8 says, why are you thinking these things? And then he asks, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. Originally, as I pondered those questions, it seemed to me that the second question was the central question. Don't you realize that I can forgive sins and and I can restore broken bodies? Don't you realize that God has sent me to, to make people whole inside and out? That's extremely important. But the more I pondered the story, the more I came to see that really the first question is the central question. Because it's the question about Jesus' identity. 
that's at the heart of it. And as Jesus addresses the religious leader's concern, he's really asking them, so who do you think I am? Why do you think I've come? What do you think is at the heart of my teaching and my ministry? Who am I to you? Now Mark doesn't tell us the response of the man or his four friends who lower him down through the roof when Jesus says your sins are forgiven. But he does tell us how the religious leaders respond. And I think Mark is trying to help us understand, to see the point of the story. How do religious people respond when Christ works in unorthodox ways? The message has this question, why are you so skeptical? And I wonder if God isn't asking us that question. The issue of the religious leader's question is skepticism about Jesus' authority to forgive a person's sins. And that's typically not our problem. We believe Jesus forgives sins. It's the foundation of our, of our faith. What we do wrestle with accepting His forgiveness. I think we find it difficult for God to forgive our sins. Particularly sins that we might have committed numerous times. We find it difficult to accept His forgiveness without some kind of penance. Or some acts of contrition or saying the right words or doing the right things. We have, to, we have to measure up to God before we can receive His forgiveness. We have to be acceptable to God. And here in the story, Jesus sees faith and says, you're forgiven. And it's not even the sick guy's faith. You know, I think that bothers a lot of people when they read this story. Hey, Jesus, okay, it's fine you want to forgive his sins, but he's not the one who has the faith. And if he doesn't have faith, he can't be forgiven. And Jesus pays no attention and says, those guys have great faith. You're forgiven. Now, I suspect he had something to do with them lowering him down. I don't think he went down kicking and screaming. But I also believe that sometimes we need other people's faith to help us. And Jesus says, there's faith. You're forgiven. We might not say only God can forgive sins. We might say God only forgives sins if you do this or that. Or if you say this or that. Or if you pray in this place or that in that way. Because often we're more concerned about saying the right words than we are about whether our heart is right. I fear that we've come to care more about some kind of formula for salvation rather than a heart condition that's seeking Christ for salvation. I've heard people say, all right, as long as they said the right words, then they're okay. And Jesus says, what faith? You're forgiven. And I believe he's asking us about the things we're thinking about his forgiveness. I think he's asking us, why do you keep putting me into a box about how I work and about what I'm able to do and about how I'm able to do it? We're often more concerned that people know enough than we are that people are interested and attracted to Jesus. That people are yearning and hungry to come to Jesus. We're all about propriety and exactness. And Jesus knows the world is far too messy to deal with exactness. And he says, what faith you are forgiven. 
Jesus never talks about saying the right words. He talks about giving cups of cold water to people who are thirsty. He talks about caring for the needy. He talks about protecting the innocent and about loving the unlovely. He talks about surrender and submission of our lives to Him. He talks about faith. But so often we get wrapped up in words. You might wonder, what in the world are the religious leaders even doing there? I mean, they're not followers of Jesus. Well, they are keepers of the law. It's their job to maintain the integrity of the law. And here's a new rabbi that's come on the scene. He's he's teaching some new things. And people are saying they like his teaching better than theirs. So they've come to check him out. And sometimes... We do the same thing with Jesus. You know, we, we are more concerned about keeping tradition than we are about being open to Christ. Maybe we're on the other side of it. Maybe we're enamored with whatever the new thing is. And that's more important to us than being open to Christ. I have a feeling Christ is asking us, are you more concerned about your own agenda or about the Father's? I think we struggle with new things because we're stuck in old things. Someone said to me recently, you know, it seems to me that miracles don't happen that often around us in this country. They tend to happen in other places. The developing countries of the world and the global south. And maybe it's because we have designed such intricate boxes into which we've placed God that we wouldn't see a miracle if he did one. We aren't open to God doing miracles because it worries us and we can't explain it and we can't grasp it and we can't understand it. So let's not mess with that. And all the while we keep building boxes around God. Do we believe that if people want to change, God can change them, even if we don't think they can change? Do we believe that God can make us holy? That God can help us to overcome the habits that have grabbed hold of us? Do we believe that That God still heals. That God still does the miraculous. That God wants to work in unorthodox ways. You know, what worries me the most about this story is that I... I fear that if we were in that place... We would be more apt to be sitting on the front row than on our stomachs looking through the hole in the roof. And that worries me. Because we are people who who give ourselves to knowing God's Word and, and studying God's Word. And we're people who read God's Word and discuss God's Word and go to conferences about God's Word. We know God's Word. But are we day by day open to God. Is it possible that we are more concerned 
with protecting God's word than with internalizing his word. Is it possible that we're more concerned with defining how God works than with rejoicing however God works? Is it possible that we're more passionate about protecting our theological beliefs than we are with seeing broken people made whole? What is it that stirs up our emotions? Is it seeing the guilty set free or making sure decorum is kept? Is it seeing the broken restored or is it making sure we're engaged in the next new thing that's coming along? And maybe our skepticism isn't that God cannot forgive sins. Maybe our skepticism is that God can do the miraculous. That God can do things outside of what we can know, outside of what we have experienced, outside of that which makes us feel comfortable. I think the real heart of the matter is the condition of our hearts. Remember, Jesus asks a why question. Why are you thinking these things? Why are you so skeptical? What's going on in your heart that's causing you to doubt and to question and to miss who I am and all that I'm doing? What's going on in your heart that causes you to say it's up when it's down and it's down when it's up? What's causing you? What's in your heart that's causing you to ignore the works that I'm doing and rejecting me? What is it in us that makes us blind to what God is doing? That causes us to fight the new things that God is doing in the church and in His people and in the world? What is it in us that causes us to to push aside the historic and and channels through which God has often worked and is still working. What is it in us that makes us unmoved about the needs of the world, about the broken, hurting, helpless people of the world? What is it that causes us to be more concerned about the way things are done than about the things God is doing. It seems to me that it's because we're more enamored with ourselves than with God. We're more concerned about our own agenda than God's agenda. Because we want to control life. We want to control God. We like to keep things safe and comfortable. But when we live with that mindset, we miss out on so much of what God is doing and wants to do. And in that mindset, we always end up being people who are known for our sense of worry and fear and anxiety and anger and apathy and pride and we miss the joy of what God is doing I guarantee you God is going to work in some ways that make sense to you and feel comfortable to you 
But I also guarantee you that God is going to work in some ways that will make you feel uncomfortable and may not make total sense to you. Are you willing in either case to trust and to believe? Because when it comes down to it, I think Jesus is saying to us, the people in my kingdom look a whole lot more like the guys on the roof than the guys down front. People in my kingdom have a heart of faith like the guys who would tear open a roof so their friend could get to Jesus. And the people down front who know the word but don't know God. Which do you think describes you? Holy Father, we like to be comfortable and safe. We like to be able to control what's going on. Father, forgive us. Set us free from that burden. Give us grace to live in the joy and the freedom of relationship with you. Father, set us free from all that binds us. And in your grace, day by day, restore us to the wholeness of being that you created us to enjoy. In Christ's name, amen.